Welcome to the Being Human UT podcast, where Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas will discuss issues relative to the humanities and technology at Utah Tech University. And now your hosts for Being Human UT podcast, Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas. This is a special podcast that we're having this month. We were able to participate in and attend, or at least I was able to participate in and attend in person, the Digital Humanities 7 Conference at SUU in Cedar City. And Jim, you were able to Zoom in with us, and it was a really great experience. Yeah. So Digital Humanities 7, uh, you've you've gone to a few. Uh, Tell us what this conference really entails. Well, this conference started as a group of people getting together to share ideas who were in the field of digital humanities. In the state of Utah, you have two pretty pretty strong institutions when it comes to digital humanities representation. And um, surprising to no one, those two institutions are the University of Utah and BYU. So up in the Salt Lake area, actually, I believe the first conference was at UVU, though it was organized by uh, Jeremy Brown and Brian Croxall and some others at, at uh, BYU. Um, they started meeting and having panels, giving presentations to kind of share the work that they were doing. And they quickly found out that others around the state had faculty members, at least, who were involved in digital humanities. And so the uh, goal was to kind of spread this conference out across the state and have other institutions participate. So the first one, like I said, was at UVU, then at the University of Utah. The third one, which was the first one I attempted to attend, was in Logan at Utah State, and it was terrible weather. This conference, for whatever reason, has always remained in late February, and I set off to drive to Logan from St. George, and I got as far as Cedar City, and I could barely see 10 feet in front of my car because of all the snow. And I said, I'm going back to St. George. Mm -hmm. And there was a winter storm warning this week (laughs) (laughs) for this conference as well. So it was a miracle that a lot of people were able to get there. It seems to go hand in hand with this conference. I don't think there's any way of escaping that. So the first one I attended was um, DHU4, which was at Weber State. But by that time, some of my colleagues, um, Joy McMurrin and uh, Cherie Crenshaw, uh, Tata Vreda participated, and we felt like we had a strong enough team to host the conference ourselves. So we um, hosted DHU5 um, on our campus back in the days when we were um, the when we were DSU, and it was a great experience for a couple of reasons. One was um, we were able to draw some scholars, primarily from Utah, but also a few from um, Nevada and California, and just had a really, really good conference. Um, It's never been a huge conference. It usually has about 30 to 50 participants um, and other people who are interested. But the one reason why DHU5 will always stick in my mind is because we literally just got it in under the wire. I believe the conference was Friday and Saturday. And then on Monday, we got the message from the provost saying, we're shut down because of COVID. We're going online for everything else now because of COVID. 
So we had a little bit of a break because of COVID, but then DHU six was back last year at BYU. And then this was DHU seven. So that's probably more practical information than you wanted to hear. You know, digital humanities is, is a field in which people explore the intersection between um, technology and the study of disciplines and texts and um, um, ideas that have been as- traditionally associated with the humanities. And so, for example, a, a, great, a, great, uh, a great example of a digital humanities product uh, project is to take large bodies of text. So take all, Vic- all Victorian novels published between... 1855 and 1875 and analyze them for religious references. What were the religious references that people were making in this time period? And you can use the power of computing to find how much representation of certain phrases, certain words, certain ideas that you get. And it's really quite amazing. And so now instead of saying, you know, I kind of have a hunch that you know, religious ideas and spirituality in the Victorian era during these 20 years were represented by these ideas. And I'm going to look at these handful of novels to analyze it. Mm-hmm. That's traditionally how we had approached a, a kind of cultural, new historical, perhaps, approach to that kind of uh, research. But now with humanities, um, digital humanities and, and the power of computers, you can look at a much larger section now you need to have people who are trained to do that. I certainly am not trained to do that. And some of the ideal digital humanities projects we've seen are a team of people who combine their talents of computing, um, uh, coding with content area experts who can then interpret people who have studied religion in the Victorian era, people who have studied literature in the Victorian era, and you can put those things together to really find some powerful insights. And it's just been a a field that, as you would expect in the technological world that we live in, that has grown and grown in the last couple of decades, really. It's encouraging to see you know, an overarching theme in this podcast has, has always been how does te- technology impact our discipline? And, you know, it's encouraging to see that a lot of the work that I heard about in this conference and we'll hear about in this interview are things that I, I probably would have seen 20 years ago at an MLA or something. But now it's looked through a lens of, of technology. And I think that that analysis in it is enhanced, like you were saying. It's now we're, we're looking at Victorian literature in an enhanced way through this technology that we can see it maybe with new, fresh eyes, but also from uh, um, a, a strengthened analysis. And so I, it, was, it was really cool to, to hear about the projects that, the, that our guests were working on. And uh, it was... It, it, it's really a, an encouraging type of, of conference that's going on, especially I, I really enjoy it when we we collaborate with other institutions in Utah. It just feels kind of like a, a community, a little bit of a family. Yeah, yeah. And the small, like I said, the small nature of the conference uh, really 
adds to that dynamic. You know, you and I have both been to really big conferences. You know, MLA is really big, but even regional MLAs mm-hmm. are big conferences. I know you've attended 4C several times. It's great because you can go to great presentations and it's really a, a great accomplishment to get accepted to present at those conferences. But at the same time, it doesn't have the same feel that a small conference does. And having participated in several of these, I think you're, you're not exaggerating when you say it does kind of get that family feel. So let's uh, have a listen to what some of the people who are kind of key figures in the digital humanities uh, area in Utah had to say about the conference. I'm going to be your reporter on the spot, and Jim is going to be zooming in with us. And let's take a listen to some of the participants of DHU7. For this section of the podcast, um, I'm talking to you live from Digital Humanities 7. This is an annual conference of digital humanities here in Utah. This is the seventh um, version of it. And I'm at um, Southern Utah University in Cedar City. We're joined by three participants in this conference and three people who are um, active and doing a lot of work in the realm of digital humanities. We have Brian Croxall, who's an, uh, an assistant research professor, digital humanities at Brigham Young University. Rebecca Cummings, who is the um, director of digital matters um, at the University of Utah's Marriott Library. And Julie McCowan, who, along with being the head organizer of this conference, uh, DHU7, is an assistant professor of English at SUU. So what I'd like to start off with is just um, to hear, Julie, um, how's it been organizing this conference? How have you kind of envisioned the way that you would set this up so that we could hear from some of the best DHU people in the state and in the area? Yeah, so I mean, it's been really exciting for you know for me to be able to organize this conference. It's it's been some work, but fun work. Um, so I think you know the first thing was just getting so many great uh, submissions and presentations. I think that was super fun to just see all of the interesting, fascinating work coming in that people wanted to present. Um, and then as the organizer, you know, I was really trying to find, uh, try to make sure that the panels, try to put them into uh, the presentations into panels that would have interesting connections, interesting collaborations. Um, And then, of course, making sure that we were bringing a really great keynote speaker, Dr. Marika Sifor, um, and have a chance to hear about her exciting research. Yeah, that's that's great. And and we are all looking forward to 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 hearing that uh, keynote talk tomorrow. Um, And and it it has been a great program so far. Uh, This afternoon, um, there was a great um, word cruncher workshop and man, um, (laughs) did I learn a lot about that technology and the power of that. I mean, it was something I knew a little bit about it, but not much. And that was really kind of uh, an eye opener for me. Um, The session I went to, um, there was a lot of uh, discussion of digital humanities as a way to mediate art exhibits and um, using digital humanities to work with big issues like climate change locally, you know, climate change in, 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 in Utah and in the Salt Lake Valley. And, and the power that digital humanities brings to those, the, those issues, I think, was, was really well um, demonstrated in the, in the presentations that I saw. But unfortunately, 
I was not able to see Brian's presentation because I was in that session. So Brian, I really want to hear about your presentation. Tell us the title of it and tell us about the work you've been doing on it. Got to look at the schedule. I don't know what my presentation is titled. <laughs> uh, good grief, encoding, quantifying, and analyzing peanuts in the classroom. Um, so I spoke about this. This is uh, since 2020, I've, I've taught a class in the winter semester at BYU. The class is titled Research in Digital Humanities, and it's a 300-level class in our minor, which is Digital Humanities and Technology. And so the, the class is organized. It, it could be organized. You could imagine a, a version of class where the, the students come up with their own research projects, and I sort of help them do it. That didn't seem very nice to students at a 300 level um, who maybe still aren't quite sure what digital humanities is. So I, I structured actually more as kind of a, a lab around one of my research questions. And so for the last four years, we've been working on Charles Schultz's comic Peanuts, um, partly because uh, Amy Schultz Johnson, Charles Schultz's daughter, is a student at BYU, uh, a, a non-traditional student. She's getting her master's. She got her bachelor's degree at 64. Um, just a couple of years ago and is doing a master's in linguistics and she is studying her dad's work. That's what she wanted to do. And so our, our office had helped create a data set for that. And in the way that I often do when I hear people's research, I think, oh, that's so cool. I wish I had thought of that. And then I realized, well, we've got the data and she she is doing one thing. I would probably do something else. And so I just started working on this with my students. Originally, I had two questions, which was, uh, which characters co-occur most frequently in the strip with each other. And that one's relatively easy to answer. The, the more difficult one was, does Schultz's, do Schultz's characters speak differently from one another? And the character I, I had most in mind at first was Franklin, who's the, uh, the, the only African-American character really in Peanuts. He's added in 1968 as a sort of response to the assassination of Martin Luther King. Schultz integrates the comic. Um, and and uh, and is one of the first integrated comics. Um, and you can imagine a version in which Franklin maybe speaks uh, a very particular, you know, AAVE African American vernacular English dialect, and he does not. He, in some ways, is the most uh, white sounding character in Peanuts because I think Schultz. Well, I assume Schultz was trying to be very careful as he was working on this. Um, but I was interested to discover whether, without any evidence that Schultz had intended his characters to speak differently from one another, whether or not there are actually linguistic differences as he has a sort of cast of characters to juggle across 50 years of the comic strip. So my students and I have been uh, making our own very uh, idiosyncratic and specific data set of peanuts uh, and then trying to answer these questions. And now I've talked for so long, I'm going to stop. Can I ask Brian a question? Please do. Is that data set publicly available? No. <laughs> uh, no, we, we actually have, our office has three different versions of the data set. The gocomics.com is the sort of licensed online source for peanuts. And they have alt text essentially that we could scrape. So we that's what we did first. We discovered there were lots of problems with it. Um, different hands had done the transcription, spelling errors, um, lots of weirdness. Uh, so then we threw a group of our students and one of our labs at it in their spare time. So we made a data set for Amy to use in her research. And then my data set is, is much smaller, but, uh, more enriched. I'm happy to share 
it with other researchers, but it, I can't publish it really mm -hmm. um, because it's all the work is in copyright. Right. Um, right. But that's okay. You know, if, if you're not publishing it, you can do that sort of, that's, I think often a thing I like to do with students is to work on stuff that's in copyright because it helps deflate the idea of the, no, you can't touch things in copyright. No, you can, if you were using them for research purposes, if you're doing things in the classroom, we can trouble those waters, but publishing it to GitHub mm -hmm. or something like that, that's, that's something else. And and I want people to create things, so I don't want to take away their ability to make money. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Rebecca, you are not presenting at this conference. Is that right? No. And this is the first in seven DHUs I'm not presenting. And wow. it feels like such a wonderful relief just to show up and get to enjoy every presentation <laughs> without worrying how mine's going to go. <laughs> or, but maybe you're worrying about putting on the conference next year. Is that what this is? It's a trick to publicly get me to agree to <laughs> next year? <laughs> the gotcha moment. Uh, no, Randy, I'm not presenting, but I will say what's so exciting is that um, Digital Matters, the lab that I work in, we have six or seven presentations from research that's come out of Digital Matters. And so I feel really excited to see like how some of those projects have progressed since they were fellows or interns or postdocs in Digital Matters. And so probably one of the, the most exciting things for me is going from presentation to presentation and seeing like these projects that were seeds in our lab have like come to fruition. That's great, that's great. And um, you know, uh, the session we were in, the, the two presentations um, from your students were, were were outstanding, and you know our um, pr our technical writing and digital rhetoric master's program is is very new, but we're very happy to have um, some graduate students participating in the in this conference. And and um, our first student um, Brett Stansfield presented in that project, and he was my student as an undergraduate, and he's just just doing some astounding work and he's always been drawn to artists and, and, and poets and just really, really taking a unique look at um, their work. And I was just the whole session that I went to this afternoon was just great. So, so far, so good. I have to say with, with DHU seven. So Jim, if you have a couple more, got some broader questions to ask. Well, the, the beauty of the conference is that you get to share something you're doing at your institution, um, sometimes it's often specific. And I'm just wondering if there's anything that's going on at your institution, either you're working on or other colleagues with digital humanities that you wanna share. I mean, you don't always get that opportunity in your, your tight window of presentation. So is there anything you wanna share about what's going on in your institutions? I mean, there's one presentation tomorrow I can't wait to see that's coming out of our institution, um, out of the University of Utah, but more specifically out of Digital Matters. And that's our postdoctoral fellows recent project. Um, I don't want to mess up the title, so I'm just going to try to find it and read it. But it's Dr. Kaylee Alexander, and she is speaking on the U.S. Cemetery Audit Examining Inequality in American Deathscapes. And I've been watching Kaylee for months, scraping data off find a grave. I mean, we're talking like hundreds of thousands of graves and, and looking at this massive data set. And I know that she just in the last week has managed to visualize some things interact like interactively. So it'll be new to me to see what she's been working on most recently as I've watched her scrape data for months on end. So I'm very excited to see that tomorrow. I know that the the first panel of the morning uh, has a team from BYU uh, doing the the 
It's Grant Madsen, and he's a history, associate professor of history at BYU, but he's been working with students for two years on, on a data set of sort of congressional speeches and records. And this time they're talking about presidential morality. They're sort of looking at the way in which people speak and they've coded all these speeches with different forms of morality and sort of trying to see the way in which speeches change uh, their rhetorical approach over time and how that leads, um, whether it's probably not a causal relation, but uh, how that is connected to actual legislation or presidential executive actions that are taken. And, and one of the things I think is exciting about that is, is it's an opportunity we've had to have CS students pair with history students um, working together. And it's uh, with a large team of undergrads that are doing the work. One of the things that BYU um, tends to not have much in the way of grad students. We have some, but it's, it's you know, maybe 2,000 out of our 32,000 students. And so we do more work with our undergrads. And, and so that's, I think it's an exciting thing. I know for, for me, when, as an undergrad in the humanities, I, I was, I was looking forward to grad school where it felt like I could finally maybe do something real instead of reporting on what other people had done and sort of summarizing that. And so it's exciting that one of the things I like about digital humanities is it, it gives me a lot of times a chance to work with students to ask questions that no one's ever asked before. And, and then it can feel like real research that they can get involved in. Yeah, and then obviously, I since I'm running things for this conference, I decided I wasn't going to make things harder for myself by presenting. Um, but in terms of kind of research and teaching stuff that I'm kind of fascinated with adjacent to DH um, is, of course, chat GPT and AI writing, specifically for writing pedagogy. Um, and so I've been working on that in my my classes. And I and my colleague, John Belk in English, have been you know, running workshops for faculty, trying to talk them through, like, this isn't the glue and doom like this isn't the horrible thing you think it is and I'm going to be working on a an article looking at writing pedagogy and AI writing over the summer so that just kind of got me super excited you know the first thing I did when I, I accessed chat GPT was fed in all of my first year writing essay prompts to it and started getting it to write essays like I was a student and that just got me so super excited and nerding out on it and so that's kind of my thing both teaching and research wise that you know maybe the next DHU8 I'll present on that at the University of Utah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, th I think ChatGPT is is like our university is formed, or at least our college, the College of Humanities, has formed a task force on it, and uh, a couple of us from our office are on that. And it's so exciting, exciting, Julie, to hear your excitement about this because I think the the gut reaction you're seeing in the press is is people wringing their hands and being worried about this and. And, and that's a horrible narrative like that. That narrative frustrates me so much to hear like it's plagiarism, it's cheating. And I'm just like sitting there going like, no, it's not. It's not. Let me tell you why it's not. So, yeah. And and it's not going to go away either. And so uh, universities can take a very um, reactionary approach to it or they or we can say, look, this is a new tool. What, like, how do we design around it? How do we get students working with this tool? You know, we, we've we experimented with it on code, right? We can put code into it and it will actually make our code better. Um, or you can, hey, start writing a prompt. And then uh, Jesse, one of my colleagues, he's been taking um, some of his writing and then asking ChatGPT to just clean it up a little bit. So he's done a bulk of the writing and then it sort of will do some editing on it. And 
So there's a lot of different ways that it can be used in the writing classroom. Um, and, and how different is it from all the tools we already had for writing, like spell check um, or grammar? Like it's, it's, it's obviously an evolutionary step beyond those, but we've all been using tools, thesauri or dictionaries for years to make our writing better. And so this is just the next thing we get to play with. My 17 year old said to me, well, it's just a calculator for writing. And I thought that was a great insight. So I think yeah. that's a good analogy. So <laughs> yeah, it, there's, we had it in the presentation I was in, um, two BYU students that I hadn't heard their work at all, Megan McComber White and her husband, Kason White, uh, presented. She's an MFA student and w works on creative nonfiction, and he's a, a data scientist. And so she, and this is for fun. It's not even related to her thesis. They, they, she got her husband to help her start using large language models like um, GPT-3, which is what's behind ChatGPT, to look at the likelihood of, she pulled a couple of phrases from David Sedaris, and then I can't remember the other two authors, I'm sorry, um, but they, they were sort of unusual and poetic, and it struck her when reading these essays. And then they sort of took those phrases and tried to under, use the, the, the large language model to see how predictable those were. And so that was an interesting approach to trying to get, and they had a couple of variables they could tweak in the model to try and get it to produce things that were um, because the, the phrases tend to be unusual or unexpected, and that's what makes them memorable. And so she's been using that, she said, to not only understand how writers work, but it, it's led her to think about uh, places where she might like because the the models can't predict these things very well. Um, the predictable words are always the things you would expect, and, and that's not what makes a piece of writing memorable. And so th that focus on trying to understand how authors make those choices has helped her she said, think about how she shapes phrases and how she wants to represent whatever experience she's writing about. So I, that was really exciting to discover that we had students just on their own for fun doing this at BYU without our office having any knowledge whatsoever of it. Until you were here, did you learn about yeah, that at yeah. DHU? Well, yes. that's the beauty of DHU right there. Yeah, I have no idea this was happening. So, and well, and it's, and it's great to, I mean, it's, it, as as my colleague and I were driving down, we were talking about how driving across Utah, uh, if you were in Europe, we would have crossed at least a couple of national borders. Um, you know, it's a large, we live in a, a large place and we don't get to see each other very often. In fact, like Rebecca and I only live an hour apart from each other. And I don't think I've seen you since the last conference because we're all busy um, teaching and doing all the things that we do. Um, and so it's, it's fantastic to see friends from around the state and hear what ha is happening at the different campuses. Cause, cause I think we all have different personalities and the sorts of things we're tackling. Yeah. Um, chat GPT is uh, a top hot topic on our campus as well. Um, Jim and I actually were interviewed about it, um, by the local newspaper last month. We did a podcast um, last fall, but we were talking more about AI in general. We had talked about a couple of other programs, but ChatGPT has just kind of taken everybody by storm. And um, we probably need to do another episode on ChatGPT specifically, Jim. I mean, I think it's it's pretty wow. obvious that it's everywhere. And and some of my colleagues are having the reaction similar to the one that Julie described. This is the end of of us teaching composition and you know those those days are gone and um i'm really glad to to 
get other perspectives on the value uh, that it can bring to the process. And, you know, I, I really think that it's something that can be a great enhancement, like, like, like everyone here has been talking about. Yeah, I mean, it'll be crazy to see what AIs are doing six months from now, because a year ago we were all, or not even a year ago, it was Dali and, uh, and mid journey, right. AI art. And so I, I taught mm. a day about that in my class in the fall. And then in November, suddenly we have chat GPT. And so six months from now, we'll have something else crazy new. Like maybe, well, I think AI is already producing recipes. You can do that. So something weird will happen. Change is fun or stressful and or stressful. <laughs> and it's just a choice we've got to like, how we approach it like well what what i was going to ask is sort of a follow-up because it seems like with digital humanities there like many disciplines in humanities first you have to define what it is to people outside uh and then you have to sort of emphasize that it could be something that you can incorporate globally or at least everybody can understand on a larger scale do you see other colleagues incorporating it inside or outside um, of your disciplines, you know, and are you having to sell digital humanities to, to people? I mean, do you have any success stories of reaching people in STEM? <laughs> reaching people in STEM? Uh, <laughs> I don't know about them, but I, I'm not actually very interested in trying to reach them. <laughs> uh, I, I'm more interested in trying to in convince the people in the humanities that like, that this, that these approaches still produce you know, the same sort of like, just because I'm using a computer to do some part of my, of my calculations to use Rebecca's son's phrase, doesn't make, doesn't mean that it's not, you know, totally intelligible. Um, if I take the time to make sure I'm, I'm still pointing it at that, at that audience. So our, you know, our, our work at BYU, our office is, is sits inside the college but isn't in the library. A lot of universities mm -hmm. like the, the U, it sort of has a home in the library because it's neutral safe ground um, for those sorts of endeavors. And so our job is, is largely working with our faculty in the college and, and helping them sort of one by one as they come in and say like, well, I have an idea. And, and for us to then help them see uh, what they could do with it um, and, and whether or not it's possible. So, it, you know, in, in the... Last year, we've had um, somebody come in wanting to work on the uh, VS Naipaul's father, Seepersad Naipaul, was a, a journalist in Trinidad and uh, was writing in newspapers before the custom of signing articles. And so we are trying to trace using stylometric approaches, uh, authorship attribution to determine, can we tell when Seepersad Naipaul is writing in these Trinidadian newspapers? Um, and then we've got someone in our Russian and, and German department working on creating an archive of this Russian emigre to uh, to the UK and who wrote 200 essays and letters to the editor that were published over the years, uh, largely about Russia and representing um, parts of Russia to, to the British people. And so we're going to publish this archive and another database on Scandinavian LDS women immigrants that, you know, that we have a, a approximately five to 10,000 women who leave Scandinavia in the 19th century and come to Utah and settle um, all over the state. And so getting a sense of who they were, why they came and when they came, those are some of the things we're working on. So our college has enough to keep us busy. Um, 
I, I don't know. Without trying to recruit people. Without, without well, yeah, talking I mean, to scientists. I'm thinking about Jim's question. I think it highlights what's different about our programs between Digital Matters and BYU because we run a competitive fellowship program where we actually fund um, faculty and graduate student projects every semester. So sometimes my job is sort of to let people know that what they're doing is digital humanities. I feel like they come into my office and always they say like, I'm not sure if this counts. I don't know if this is digital humanities. And I mean, of course, we are beyond the College of Humanities. Our fellowships are open to the College of Fine Arts, the College of Architecture and Planning, the School for Cultural and Social Transformation. Anyone who's like a partner college at the U um, is welcome to apply. And so sometimes it is kind of bolstering their confidence that what they're doing counts as digital humanities if they're applying, you know, technology to humanistic questions, and especially if it's things that people in their discipline don't typically do. You know, I love hearing uh, Rebecca and Brian hearing y'all talk, because I know SUU, like, we don't really have a digital humanities program, um, and I think I'm one of the only faculty member at the university that does DH related work. I know I'm the only one in the English department, and I think that was part of why I was so excited that DHU7 is at SUU this year, because then I can convince my colleagues, come listen, like, you know, the, come learn what digital humanities is. You can, you know, come sit in on it and find out. Um, because I think there is, like Brian was saying, like not trying to recruit people from STEM, just trying to get people in the humanities to be more aware of it. Because I think they're kind of, a lot of people, at least at SUU or like my colleagues are like, yeah, I've heard of digital humanities, but I don't really know what it is or I don't know what projects look like, you know, DH projects look like. And it's like, well, come come to DHU 7 and sit in and you can see that, you know, see what the field looks like. And some of the projects are so intimidating. Like when I do see some of the things, especially happening at BYU, I'm like, well, I'm not a computational, you know, linguistics person, but other things I see and I'm like, oh, I can understand how they did it. You don't have to be a programmer, um, but you may have to learn a few new tools or learn a little bit of Python to do it. So I, I think there's a great range at D DHU that shows people that have like relatively easy entry points and others that seem pretty advanced. Yeah. Well, in, in the session I was in, Ryan Ryan Seamers from SUU spoke about having to take his pedagogy online during the pandemic and how he adapted his survey of lit courses and survey of poetry um, to make them more engaging for students. So talking about the just some of the things he did to his syllabus, um, which some people would say, well, that's not, you know, you're not using Python or R to, to do these things. But I, those sorts of approaches are, I think, just as welcome at a conference or in these conversations is, is how do we do the things we've been doing as humanities scholars and teachers uh, and, and change them as we, as our society becomes more and more networked. Yeah. Um, just, just quickly um, a little bit of a shout out. Uh, we started our um, Utah tech humanities center this year and I'm the uh, inaugural coordinator and, and Julie came down in October and did a great presentation on archival work that she had done um, and talked about digital humanities and really um, got a lot of our graduate students kind of interested and excited about that. And I think a big part of why we've got a, a large presence here is that we've we've um, shown these great projects to them. And, they, and just like you say, they they start, you know, lights start to go on in their head saying, you know, I'm already been, I've already been thinking about something like this, or I've even already been doing something like this. And it's just worked out really well. So um, uh, that was, 
we're, we're on the opposite ends of the spectrum here. The, the BYU and Utah and what they have in terms of the presence of digital humanities and the resources and then SUU and Utah Tech, um, you know, but we can make those kinds of things work in the environment in which we find, find ourselves. And then, of course, we get opportunities like this where we can all come together and hear about all the great things that everybody's doing. So it's it's been great. So thank you all so much. Um, it's been great talking to you and it's been great hearing about all of the work that you're doing. That was really interesting. Their, their perspective, uh, getting to see what they're looking at in digital humanities. Um, I, I really appreciate you setting up that, that interview, Randy. And uh, I, I'm, I'm excited to see the future of this conference. Well, you will be able to participate in this conference in the near future if you so desire, because barring any unforeseen circumstances, we have a tentative schedule for the next two. So DHU-8, which will be in 2024, will take place at the University of Utah. And then DHU-9, which will take place in 2025, will be here on the campus of Utah Tech University. So we're very, very happy to have the opportunity to host that again and, and happy to p potentially participate, you know, weather permitting in the conference up in Salt Lake City next year. One other thing I wanted to say as far as preview, um, we can let our listeners know that pre-interview, we kicked around, Jim and I kicked around the idea of asking them about chat GPT and decided not to do it. And guess what? ChatGPT came up anyway. We consciously avoided it, and then they just brought it in. <laughs> so if you are interested in hearing more about ChatGPT, stay tuned to this podcast, because we are going to have an episode dedicated to that. Um, we had a great podcast with Curtis Larson talking about AI, generation of writing in general, but we're going to have one that more specifically focuses on ChatGPT coming up soon. Thanks so much for listening, and thank you, Jim, for zooming in to the conference and adding your insights, and we look forward to seeing everybody in our next episode. This has been the Being Human UT Podcast with Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas. Please follow and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. From Utah Tech University, this is the Being Human UT Podcast.